If you're joining us for the first time in a few weeks, we're in a series called The Way. It's a series about discipleship. And a couple of weeks ago, Keith opened that series, Keith Maloney, uh, by sharing about what discipleship is, trying to define it at a high level. And last week, we talked about the call of Jesus, that Jesus calls people to be his disciples. That was true in the first century when he walked on planet Earth, and it's still true today in our lives. But today, I want to move to what happens after that calling? What happens after we've received a call and we've taken on Jesus in baptism, as we've seen today? What does it look like to take the next steps? And what happens after he calls the disciples is he begins to teach them. Uh, If you have your Bibles, feel free to open this morning to Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to spend the entire sermon not flipping back and forth, but all in Matthew 5 through 7 in in a little bit. But I want to set that up by saying a few comments. You know, what I believe about many churches is that we've become very good at calling people to make decisions. Decisions to follow Jesus. Uh, decisions like we saw this morning. And, and I hope everyone in this room is, has either made that decision or is considering and praying through if that's the life God is calling you to. That's why we're here, is to be on this way with Jesus. And it takes that initial commitment. It's a vital part of it. But that doesn't mean that churches have always done a good job making disciples. And those are two different things, right? One is a decision to follow Jesus. Disciples are people who are continually on that journey through the rest of of our lives. Uh, and I, I think that's true in a lot of places. It's not just churches that uh, think about decisions and, and don't think about what comes after, but this is kind of how our consumer culture works, right? But it's the job of a business or an entrepreneur to figure out a product or a service that they can sell to someone else. And the problem is uh, a lot of companies focus on that initial sell, but that's kind of the end of it, right? It's making a decision. For instance, um, I, I passed on a curse to my son recently. I gave him one of these, a Rubik's Cube. I know some of you look at this and you're like, I, I can do that in a snap. Maybe you've done the work, right? But the maker of the Rubik's Cube, interestingly enough, was a, a teacher who was trying to show students about geometry and the understanding of that sort of thing. It ended up being the best-selling product of, of toy of all time, actually. And uh, I've never actually been able to solve one, so I'm going to work at that someday. But I, I bought this thinking I'll pass this off to my son to see if he can do something better than me, right? Next generation going forward. And he still hasn't been able to do that. So if your kid can do that or if you can do that, I'd love a lesson so I can teach him more. But we make a decision to buy something. That doesn't mean we necessarily know how to work it afterward. I mean, I could pick up this guitar, which I'm not going to do. Whoever it is, Mike, I, I, won't, I won't, you know, trick you with that. But I, I could buy a guitar this afternoon. It doesn't mean I know how to work it or how to play it. It's going to take practice. It's going to take training. It's going to take more than just buying something. I also have something that I call a health club membership. Some of you have the same thing, right? And they do a great job at certain times of the year of getting you to make a decision, right? We want to make better decisions. We want to get in shape. So we get that card. But the follow-ups at some gyms just aren't as good as that initial decision. And I'm afraid as churches, we've done somewhat the same thing. We sold people a picture of what eternal life is like, which is definitely the promise for those of us who made decisions. But we leave people there sometimes rather than calling them to a further journey of discipleship. And uh, we want to be a church that does more than help people make decisions. Let me clarify that. We want to help people make decisions. We want people to follow Jesus. We believe this is the best way of life possible, don't we, church? And eternal life comes with that. It's what we saw today, and we celebrate that. But we don't finish there. That's like a starting line for the journey of faith, not a finish line. 
And the journey many of us are on is trying to get back on track with that, to trust that God is involved. See, we call this series The Way because of a couple of reasons. I went over this last week, but I want to remind you of it. First of all, the early Christians were referred to in this way. When Saul was breathing out murderous threats, was persecuting the church, he was looking for people who belonged to the way. Isn't that interesting language, right? What it says is we're not just here to, uh, to, to, to perform religious functions. We're not just checking boxes here. We're on a path. We're on a journey. This ship is headed somewhere. And we believe God's called us on that journey, this way that we all join together. That's what the restoration movement was really all about, wasn't it, right? Restoring something, but it's a movement. It's headed somewhere. It's moving. It's not ever static. The other reason that we wanted to use this language of the way is because that's how Jesus refers to himself. In John 14, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. If you want to know the way to the abundant life, my trust and what I want to pass on to you today is the teachings of Jesus are the best way I've found, the best way I've been able to practice to find a life that is fulfilling and that moves me away from the dangerous things that my life has sometimes gone down tracks of and, and, and set me back on the path. But let's pray as we begin uh, God's, uh, the, the message into God's word this morning. God, this morning we come to you with all kinds of voices and noise that are trying to tell us what truth is in our culture. We're confused. We live in a gray uh, culture that isn't sure where to turn and isn't sure exactly uh, what it looks like to follow you clearly. And yet that's what we've committed our lives to. Our baptisms, God, our commitments to believe that you are Lord. And when that happens, we, that means we trust your teaching because we believe you know the best way to life. So this morning, God, would you re, uh, help us reimagine that? Would you help us hear again clearly your voice through your spirit who leads us into all truth still today? I pray this morning you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts and that we might join this way again. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Last week, we talked about the calling story of Jesus, that Jesus calls these disciples to follow him. And I noted last week how remarkable it is, the, the specific words in verse 20 and 22 of Matthew 4, it says immediately or at once, Jesus called these these guys to follow him and they drop their nets immediately. And I'm thinking, well, who does that? Who, who leaves everything they know in their life to do that? But last week we looked at the context and we realized that the rabbis were very respected. They were revered in their culture. And only the best students who came to know scripture ended up following in the way of Jesus to the level or, or, or following rabbis to become rabbis themselves. It was a big deal to get called. And when they would be called by a rabbi, it was that phrase, come follow me. And that's the very phrase Jesus uses with these disciples. I would suggest this morning, it's the same uh, three words he uses today with us. The call is always to come and follow Jesus. And in another sense, what he's saying is, I think you can do what I do when he says that to the disciples. I think you can learn what I've learned. And, and through the spirit that I'm going to give to you, he even says later on, in, in, the, in, the, in the gospel of John, that you're going to do even greater things than these. That's remarkable to me. That means there's a lot of potential because of the spirit of God living inside of us. And last week, some of you decided to become disciples. Some of you made decisions to, to recommit to the decision you made long ago. So the question is, once you accept that call, what's next? And I think it's really important that if we've chosen to follow Jesus as Lord, we ought to know what Jesus teaches us to do. We ought to know his teaching. And this morning, I want to talk about that very thing. What does Jesus teach us to do? Because the reality is we tend to think if we just read the Bible and do it, that's good enough, right? 
But years ago, when the Jewish scriptures were provided and they would read them in synagogue, there were different rabbis and teachers who would, in, would emphasize certain parts and would make other parts less important. There were different schools of thought about what it meant to follow the Torah. So some rabbis would believe one thing, and another would say, you know, I don't really see it that way. I see it more this way. And so when a disciple would follow a rabbi, what they were doing is saying, I believe your interpretation is the best way to see it. And I want to commit my life to learning this so I can teach others the same. So when Jesus says, come follow me, what he's saying is, I have a way to teach you about the law. I can interpret and tell you the story of the Hebrew scriptures in light of what I'm coming to do with the announcement of the kingdom of God that is on its way. And so he comes and he teaches his disciples. And our job is to listen, to understand how he interprets it, and to apply that to our lives. One of the core places in Scripture that shows the teaching of Jesus is in Matthew 5-7, to which I asked you to turn to a moment ago. It's referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. It's the first sermon that's recorded in Matthew's Gospel. It's three chapters that I would encourage you to read, to commit to memory, to really trying to put this into practice. You know, some people uh, and scholars have seen this work of Jesus, this teaching, and what they've said is, Jesus really didn't expect that we'd be able to do these things. These are radical teachings. And so they say, really what this is intended to do is to drive us to our knees because the expectation is so high, the bar is so high, we can't clear it. And so we just drop to our knees uh, depending on the grace of God uh, for what we can't do. And certainly the grace of God covers so much of our sin on an ongoing basis. But I don't think that's what Jesus was actually intending when he preached this sermon. And the reason I believe he meant for us to do this is because of how he finishes his sermon. So open with me, to, if you would, to chapter 7, Matthew 7. I want to read verses 24 to 27. Listen to this in light of that question of, is this something we're intended to do, or is this just something we seek God's grace in our failure? It says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down. You know the song, don't you? Streams rose. The winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down. The streams rose. The winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. I want to say one thing this morning about this passage. And that is, you notice that storms come not just to the foolish, not just to the evil. They come to those who are righteous, who are trying to follow God's commands. So you may be in a season right now where you're feeling a big push. The evil one seems real alive in your life right now. What I want to assure you is that doesn't mean that God's sending that because you've done something wrong. Sometimes we do have consequences for our sins, and that's what's happening. But in this passage, he's real clear to say, hey, look, the winds of life are going to come and beat against every house. The question is where you build your life. And he gives this interpretation. He says, if you put it into practice, that means you're the wise person. You're the wise man. And so we want to do that. We want to be wise people, don't we? And we want to put Jesus' words into practice. So what does Jesus teach them? Well, he starts with words of blessing in this sermon, which I think is really important because there are people who may not know much about the Christian faith who get glimpses from social media or from pictures of televangelists or or, or voices out there that are real harsh about faith. And I, I just want to say real clearly, the first word of Jesus' first sermon in the Gospel of Matthew is blessed. He starts with blessing. And his words are like this, if I could retell it in kind of 21st century standard. You're blessed when you're at the end of your rope, is the way the message translates it. You're blessed when you're poor in spirit. Because with less of you, there's more for God and his reign. Isn't that good news if you feel like you're at the end of your rope right now? 
He says, you're blessed if, if you have tear-stained eyes because when you mourn, all of a sudden you see the world in a whole new way and you're empathetic to others who are there. Comfort comes. He says, you're blessed if you're a person who depends on mercy. If you're a merciful person, you receive mercy in return. You're blessed when you hunger for justice rather than hungering for more of whatever our addiction is. You're blessed when, when you make peace. You're blessed when you are mistreated because of righteousness, because of following the words I'm sharing with you in this teaching. He's saying, you're not like the rest of the world, and the blessed people are not like the world says is blessed. This is a different kind of kingdom. He says, you're different. If you're a follower of mine and you accept my teaching, you're like a flashlight in a dark world. You're there to light up the rest of this world as dark. And not only that, the world is full of decay. Amen? But you as people, you're salt, which means you're to be a preservative in, in the midst of a world that's decaying. Then the next part of the sermon, he begins to talk about the law, the Torah. These first five books in the Hebrew Scriptures. And different rabbis would have said it different ways, but he reinterprets it as any good rabbi would. And he says, look, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. Now that's the Ten Commandments, right? That's right out of what these people would have known, what they would have memorized early on as probably two or three-year-olds. This is beginner stuff. But he says, look, you've heard that it was said, do not murder. I'm still for that. <laughs> but I want to go deeper. Don't let anger get a hold on your life. Don't give your best years away to anger. Now begin to change that. In fact, he says, look, if you're thinking about going to worship service, <laughs> that's a great thing. But if you've got something wrong with a brother or sister, you're better off not coming to church and fixing that rather than checking off your religious box and still having your anger underneath everything. He says, you've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. Another one of the Ten Commandments. That's a good command, right? We've seen the pain of that. But he says, actually, I want to go deeper than that. Don't, don't, Begin to lust after people. Don't, don't objectify people. Look at them for their parts. No, see the full humanity in them. And if you have trouble with it, cut off your right hand if it's going to take that. Jesus is serious about this kind of stuff. He goes further. He says, uh, actually, this gets crazier as he goes, I'm going to tell you. He says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It's one of the most bizarre teachings in human history, isn't it? Almost unnatural teachings in human history. But I'll tell you, this is a better way to live. I know people will tell you that it, it's okay to, to love your friends and hate your enemies. That's not how it works in this kingdom. Your call is to love your enemies. Now, that's, an, that's a simple command to give a head nod to, isn't it? But I want you to think about the people who persecuted you. You got faces in your mind right now? I want you to see the people who are your enemies. And the call is when you see those faces to nurture love for them and to pray for them. And don't pray the imprecatory psalms about dashing their heads against the rocks. I know some of you, you know, it's easy to pray those prayers, right? No, I want you to love these people. I want you to pray for them. That changes your heart when you begin to pray for people that you're set against. And then he says this about loving your neighbor. But when was the last time you heard someone ask someone wanting to be baptized, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Let's go a step further. Are you committing to Jesus' way and his teaching of nonviolence, of making peace? You don't dare ask that question because, well, it's not proper in our culture, right? We trust in violence way too much. We trust in the ways of the world to get things accomplished. And who would get baptized anyway if we had to commit to that? So we ask easier questions. 
But when we sign up to follow Jesus, what it means is we follow him in every way he asks. It is the right way to live. Jesus is going deeper and deeper in the sermon. And and he, he talks and he keeps talking about what's the motivation behind things and what not just about what the external behavior is. That's how the Pharisees talk. He's saying, your, your righteousness has to surpass the Pharisees. It's not just about external observance. It's not making sure everyone else sees what's good. It's, it's about a heart that is fully set on God. It's about the motivation that lies behind things. In fact, he talks about motivation in the next part. He says, when you give and when you pray and when you fast, he assumes we're doing those things. He says, when you do those things, don't do it so that everyone sees. Don't give so your name can be on buildings. Don't... Don't fast and let everyone around you know how hungry you are. Don't give your money. Don't, 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 don't pray in ways that are obvious. If you do, that's fine. You'll get your reward from humans, but you'll, you won't get the reward you truly want, which is the gift of God that comes with it. And then he goes past that to, uh, to talk about money. And he talks about money as a God, as a power, gives it a, a name. You must choose between God and mammon. It's not both of these things. You can't serve both. You have to choose. Where's your security going to lie? And after he lays that out, he begins to talk about worry, which I think is intentionally tied to that teaching about our money, right? Because some of us have come to depend on the stock market and where it goes for how our orientation is, about how the, the business is going, about our security there. But he's saying, no, no, no. I, don't worry about those things. And, and, and that seems like a simple command, but if any of you have dealt with worry, if you've dealt with anxiety, if you've dealt with depression, if you're in that season right now, for someone to just say, stop it, don't worry, that's not real helpful, is it? I want you to know our our church cares for you if you're walking in those seasons. This is not a church where we say, well, you ought to just pray it away, or you're not welcome here if you don't have a cheery face. We realize that we have some dark things that we're walking through right now with family members. If you need help, please reach out. We would love to help you figure out a way to get better help, whatever way may be necessary in your life. Refer you to the right people. Uh, People on our staff, our elders, would love to walk with you in deeper ways. Let us know about those challenges. But Jesus actually, he he goes a step further. He says, it's not just don't worry. I want you to look around you. And he's teaching on a hillside, I'm sure, right? The Sermon on the Mount. And he says, I want you to look at the flowers of the field, the lilies. Like, God takes care of them. He dresses them in all his splendor. And and then he says, look at the birds of the air. Look how much God takes care of them. They don't worry a day in their life where the the next amount of food's going to come from. So I want you to be the same way. I want you to trust that I'm going to provide in ways I have in the past. It'll happen in the future. And then he talks about a different kind of uh, motivation. Uh, motivation about worry is about something else. But then he says, look, I don't want you to judge. I, and, and he doesn't exactly say that. What he says is, I, I want you to be careful when you judge that you start with yourself before you judge someone else. This is a great principle, right? Sometimes it's easy to launch out and create judgment and to be uh, looking at others and to see how they're wrong. Sometimes we build up our own identity through that. But what he says is, no, first look at your own problems. Judge yourself. Judge your heart. Judge your motives. Get the plank out of your eye so that you can look clearly to actually help someone with the right heart and the right spirit. Maybe even confessionally telling them how you've been able to remove what's there in your life. How much would that change to create good judgment if we were to start with ourselves? On and on he goes. And when I hear this sermon... And it talks about the fruit that comes after that. It talks about the narrow road. I mean, this is a challenging sermon. And when I look at it, I'm, I'm curious, is there anybody in the room? Nobody in first service. Maybe we have a second service person. 
who feels like you've got this one conquered already, the sermon. Ready to move on to sermon two, Jesus? Like, I'm still working on this, right? I'm still working on this every single day, trying to commit these beatitudes to memory and praying them every morning, trying to commit to the Lord's prayer that he taught us to pray, trying to commit to a life free of worry and free of judgment, loving my enemies and creating peace wherever I go, trying to live on the narrow path that leads to life. I hope you're on this way. I think that's what the way is that Jesus is teaching. And as I look at that, I want to be called more into that life. I want others to challenge me to do that because I do believe this is the best way of life we could possibly live. This is not something we do in order to get in God's favor so we can go to heaven. Salvation already affords us that confidence. What this is, is a teaching that leads us to the abundant life. This is a teaching that leads us to better things. We do this out of love that we have for God for what he has already done for us. Amen? And yet I'm still struggling to do it through the Spirit's help. When I look at it deep down, I don't define blessing in the way Jesus defines blessing. I tend to define a blessing as a life free from worry. It's not what the sermon says. Because you're blessed when people persecute you and do all kinds of harm against you in my name. I, I don't like crying, but those with tear stained eyes are the ones who are blessed. I don't like offering people mercy. I don't like being persecuted for doing the right thing. I like being honored for that. I trust in anger more often than I trust in mercy. I struggle with lust on my best days, even when I don't let it consume me. And I don't give my critics and enemies the benefit of the doubt. I nurse grudges, and I build evidence to prove why I'm right. And I want to do better. When I pray, I pray for the things that I want rather than praying for God's kingdom to be done and his will to be done. And when I fast, let me be honest, I don't fast very more, more often than when I ask you to fast so I'm not being a hypocrite at the same time. We all struggle with this, don't we? We struggle to put this into work. I worry about a lot of things. I worry about being a good dad for my kids. I worry about being a a good husband. I worry about my past. I worry about my future. Right now, I'm worrying about what you're going to think of the sermon at the end. Church, I need to be converted all over again to the way of Jesus. My guess is this morning that as I shared this good news, that maybe some of you are saying the same thing. I want to try that. I want to seek to live into that more once again. Don't you want to do that? I want us to notice the response of the people. Imagine being there that day on that hillside. I want you to see what it says, the narrator after, perhaps it's Matthew that's Reflecting back in verse 28, listen to these words, the response to this entire sermon. When Jesus had finished saying these teachings, these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. It says he taught as one who had authority. I think that's an interesting phrase. If you're one who likes to underline in your Bibles, that's one I've got underlined because I want to know what that's like. What does it mean that he had authority? As I'm thinking this morning, we have teachers, we have administrators, we have students that are going back into school, and some of you are wonderful teachers. All of you have hearts to help your students. And this morning, I want to look at Jesus, and I want to give you a blessing today. In a minute, we'll bless our kids in a little bit. But I want to talk about this authority. I don't think it's like this, but it could be like this. Some of you have seen paintings where Jesus had a, has a halo around his head, that halo effect, right? Maybe that's what it meant. They knew he had authority because something from on high shows, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Maybe they were there when the dove came down at his baptism, right? I don't think that's it, but that could be. Maybe he's a gifted and, and charismatic teacher. 
And so people know that he teaches in a more powerful and authoritative way than the Pharisees and their way of teaching. Or maybe uh, if you look, the response he receives is that they're amazed, they're astonished. People experience his teaching differently than others. And so maybe it's his gift for application. He knows the law. He interprets the law, but he applies it in ways that are closer to people's hearts and experience. This is an internal journey, not just the external journey of trying to be perfect. It seems like he's going to a level beneath what many teachers I hear do. What sometimes I focus on can be the moralistic side. What do we do in response to this? This is asking a question about motive and heart. And are we fully committed? But I wonder if it may be something else altogether. In chapter 4, Jesus, verses 18 to 22, Jesus, uh, he calls these disciples. It's the sermon I preached last week on that. He calls them. And right after that, do you notice what he does if you flip back a couple of chapters? He sees people who are demon-possessed. He sees people who are lame, who are paralyzed. He sees people who are lepers, all kinds of diseases and sicknesses. And he calls them, and he sees what's wrong with them, and he heals their diseases. Now, what kind of authority would you give to the teacher who had just healed your child of the paralyzation that had been there all along? How much attention would you give to that teacher about how he chooses to teach about life and about the Torah and about all those things? You would be glued to that teaching, wouldn't you? Or if you'd received that personally, you're on this hillside and you're like, whatever you say, I'm ready to do it, Jesus. Just lay it out. And I love what Jesus does. Before he ever gives a command in the Sermon on the Mount, the first word is you're blessed. And before that, he's already healed these people of their diseases. He's seen them. He's heard their cries, which reminds me of another story. Back in the Exodus. In the Exodus story, you remember this. The Israelites are crying out and they're asking for God to relieve them of their bondage. And he's been quiet for hundreds of years. And in the midst of feeling like God's nowhere to be found, God hears their cry. I love that phrase. If right now you have those tears of those who mourn, I want you to know that God hears that. In fact, he keeps track of every tear that you uh, cry. He keeps a bottle, the Psalms talk about, with those tears in it is the image that's given. Powerful image. God hears, he sees. The Ten Commandments don't come until after he sees and he delivers them. And it's the same thing Jesus does. He sees these people. He hears their cry. He heals them of their diseases. And then he says, here's how you ought to live in response. Maybe that's what evangelism is really about. Not trying to tell people that you're doing it wrong, but trying to see them and to hear them and to share the good news of what God has done in our life and to say, hey, there may be a better way for you as well. This is good news that I want to share. That's what God does. He, he creates a story. He frees us. He saves us. And then he steps in and he says, hey, here's maybe some suggestions about how to do this better. And that's what we need to hear this morning is the teaching. Many of us have made those decisions. If you've not made a decision to follow Jesus, maybe this is your morning. Maybe you want to make that decision like Melissa did earlier today. I'd love to talk with you after the service. But for many of us, we've made that decision. And it's our decision if we step back into the teaching that he has 